Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to Ultimate Potential, a mental health podcast. Uh, I'm Tony Mosier. I'm Craig Lamont. And we are here to dazzle you and blind you with science, right? Yeah, and we hope so. We hope you've had a, a wonderful holiday. Uh, we hope you had a lot of peace and joy and, and happiness with your family and your friends. Today, uh, we do not have a guest here with us. It's just Craig and I, and we're going to be having a discussion about something uh, that has been in the press lately, um, and that is that, that residential treatment programs, long-term residential specifically, um, has had some negative press over the years, and that has escalated recently um, for a couple of reasons. We just want to have a talk about that, talk about what we see as valid in that critique, um, talk about what we see as maybe some of the myths, um, and talk about some safety and some protective factors so that families who are looking into residential treatment, they know the questions to ask and they know the research to do to make sure they're finding a quality program that's effective and safe. Yep. I think that when you, when you think about anything um, on the planet, uh, certain cars over other cars, uh, air, airplane versus train travel. When you when you think about uh, public schools versus private or whatever, like there's a safety f- factor in everything because humans are fallible and because there are always uh, sometimes the not safe humans that infiltrate everything that we do. Then there's no there's obviously no guarantee that your child's going to be safe walking across the street. Um, going to the grocery store, going to church, going to church, or going to uncle, uncle, whoever, to a family party, um, and so uh, we want what we want to do is to kind of bring the science and bring the uh, the reason into this discussion about residential treatment and how it can be safe and whether or not it works and and kind of those pros and cons and how to how to get in and out of because it's scary. It's scary. So to really understand um, where we're at now with residential treatment, you need to go back 30 or 40 years to the 1970s and 80s. Um, and this is really the beginnings of longer-term out-of-home treatment. Um, typically, uh, this was not regulated. Uh, you might have somebody who loved working with kids. They had a ranch. Um, they had a good heart, and they wanted to, you know, get – young struggling teens out there and, and teach them how to work hard and teach them how to breathe the fresh air and um, that by doing so they could kind of love them into health, right? Yeah. Some of these programs started as more of a militaristic, militaristic kind of approach, uh, a little more of a boot camp feel, a tough love approach. This is going back to some of the outward bound and, and some of the um, the early, early programs where there wasn't a lot of science, there wasn't a lot of skill, there wasn't a lot of research, um, and there wasn't a lot of regulation. And so what came of that, you know, 30, 40 years ago was there were some students that had some bad experiences. There were some students who, some kids who went to wilderness programs and um, and had abuse experiences or, or um or what have you, um, long-term treatment programs and had bad experiences. So the question is, how has this uh, profession evolved over time, and where are we at now? Yeah, I just want to go even further back in history, right, back to the psych hospitals. Um, 
uh, back to the um, these long term, and we're talking like your whole life, and uh, different cultures, different countries, um, and that when you track mental health and long term residential care, uh, it gets even darker and uglier as you go back through history, and so. Um, really, when you're talking about the 40-year-ago mark, um, a lot of this had shifted into um, traditional hospital settings. And the long-term residential was happening in the psychiatric units of uh, traditional hospitals. And, and then there was, a, there was a big event about, about 30, 35 years ago where uh, some, some fraud and things like that happened. And all the hospitals shut down, and that really gave birth to this private long-term residential type model where independent owners, anybody with a good heart, a good idea, and some kind of facility um, could start doing treatment. And so, again, uh, the the historical perspective of where to get treatment um, and, and what that treatment looked like uh, it actually goes way, way, way back, probably from the beginning of organized civilization, right? So yeah. anyway. And, and the reason why this has really been in the press more recently is it really comes back to um, celebrity Paris Hilton, who when she was a teenager, she was in a, a treatment program in Utah. She actually went to several different treatment programs. Mm-hmm. Um, her parents sent her to several different um, including, I believe, a couple of wilderness programs and a couple of long-term residential. Um, where Paris ended up, um, her last placement, um, she had a bad experience there. Uh, she kept that quiet. I think that there may have been some some shame involved, and she kept that quiet and was reluctant to talk about it for years and years. And only recently, um, a couple of years ago, did she made a documentary in which she shared her experience of this bad experience she had in, in mm-hmm. treatment. She joined her voice with some voices of other young people who had also had bad experiences, and they created um, a movement of, of these voices who wanted to be heard um, that these programs, you know, there, there are sometimes some bad things that can happen mm-hmm. in these programs, and there are some bad programs out there. I think... Um Tony, personally, for me, um, I was sensitive to that when I was going through graduate school because I, you know, it um, had experienced and found out about some of those bad things. And even if they're not the majority, um, even if you if one child is hurt, right, there needs to be addressed. And so I remember you and I speaking when when Paris started this movement or led this movement. Um, just the compassion that we both had for her and for for many other kids that had experienced negative things in treatment and and not trying to downplay that at all. But just m- my own passion, when I decided to become an entrepreneur as a young, young, young man, I hadn't even finished graduate school, that was the passion. The passion was to fix that problem. So in many ways, I, you know, I feel um, like I'm on a very similar or the same mission, right, is to kind of protect the children and to do a good job. It's just I'm also I've seen 
you know, 10 to 1, how many kids' lives have been saved in comparison to the ones that have been hurt. And, and so I do think um, that this discussion that we're having today can be helpful to families who actually need uh, treatment and particularly helpful for those that are afraid to get treatment and, and hopefully uh, guide some of the families that are currently seeking um, or considering this as an option, guide them through some practical steps, right? And so we'll get to it later in the podcast today. But Yeah, and then as Paris's story got more attention and more airtime, um, I actually ended up reaching out to her to have a conversation mm-hmm. because both Craig and I have been, um, over the past 20 years really, we've, we've been on national boards and, and even the president of some national associations of which the better programs throughout the nation belong. And at the time I was the, was the president. And, um, so I felt an obligation to reach out to Paris and initiate a conversation. Mm -hmm. She ended up putting me in touch with her director, her impact director of her documentary and with one of the founders of, of a movement, um, that is trying to get more uh, press and more recognition for their story. So I ended up speaking to two people. We had two or three conversations and they were really good. What I found was that these survivors who had had bad experiences were articulate, intelligent, passionate, and had valid experiences of abuse. Um, uh, they, they weren't, um, crusaders they weren't overboard they were they were wise people who saw a legitimate problem and were trying to find a, a good common sense solution to it i asked them at the time as the president of a national association is there anything i can do to join with you and instead of trying to shape residential treatment from the outside in by putting outside pressures through the media why not come inside and do some inside out work. Um, They considered that they took it back to their people and then they respectfully uh, declined. They said they just weren't in a space right now to take us up on that offer. But that is a, that offer of course still stands. So I had a good experience um, in my interactions with them, but I think it really comes back to um, the two questions that I think burn in the hearts of, of every parent and, and maybe the two questions that, um, that burn in the hearts of the critics, and that is, number one, does it work? Yeah. And number two, is it safe? Right. So let's drill down a little more into, um, into the does it work and, and is it safe? So I, I believe that if you get outside of just uh, marketing and branding and gimmicks, um, snake oil, for lack of a better term. Almost all um, major industry services, eventually they have to pay the piper and find out if it really works or not, right, yeah. through some kind of real research. And so you can't just go with the, you know, the people on this side that say, this is the greatest thing ever, and the people on this side that say, this is the most horrible thing ever. You've got to get down into the nitty gritty and find out if it really works and 
having an outside perspective, having real research, having quality, you know, quality studies done by respectable universities or whatever it is. I, I think that all of that helps um, kind of put to rest whether it works or not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, parents come in and, and sit with me um, at Telos. And one of the questions they'll ask is, how do you know this works? Um, actually, the question they usually ask is, what are your success rates? Mm-hmm. And that's always a little bit difficult because what is success to one family uh, it differs from family to family. So, you know, a family whose child has tried to commit suicide three or four times, then success looks like a child being emotionally stable and not having a recurrence of that. Right. For a, a child that's had school refusal, um, being able to graduate high school is success. For a child that is unable to make or keep friends, being able to improve in their social skills and have meaningful relationships is success. Yeah. But really what it comes down to as far as actually the best attempt we can make at measuring success is by using standardized measures. So these are scientifically standardized outcome tools that have been used across lots of different populations over time, and they're actually statistically proven to be able to really measure whether or not an intervention creates change in a statistically significant manner. So this would be beyond what we would call a satisfaction survey, right? So, you know, when you you go to a restaurant or you you go to some kind of a service and they say, hey, how did you like it? How was your experience? Oh, it was great. An actual standardized outcome is not just measuring how you felt about the service, but did it actually create real measurable results in your life permanently, Right. right? So um, the question of does it work and are there studies done? There are many studies done on long-term residential and residential treatment centers. And at Telos, we have uh, a longitudinal study that is now in its 18th year. A couple of important things to to think of when you're talking about studies is, number one, are these studies being collected in-house or, number two, are these studies done by third-party researchers? So at Telos, we use the University of New Hampshire and Professor Michael Gass, who actually handles the data and helps uh, create uh, the results or the outcome studies, helps interpret those and present those. The importance of having a third-party entity handling your research is that, you know, it, it takes away the ability to cook the books. And I think we've all known that there are there are industries out there that that uh, you know they keep their finger on the scale when they're yeah. doing their outcome studies and their research. Um, the second thing that's really important is that studies are peer reviewed, meaning other professionals in the industry outside of that organization are able to look at the study, look at the methodology, look at the abstract, look at the results, the findings, and they're able to poke holes um, because all studies aren't equal, right? There are, there are studies that are more and less likely to be accurate. And so the answer to that question is, yes, there is peer-researched outcome studies for long-term residential. Um, a great resource to go to is a website called thrivingnow.me, thrivingnow.me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe there's a frequently asked questions link. And if you click on that, one of the questions that pops up is, is it effective? 
if you click on that page, it will take you to an actual list of studies, um, third-party peer-reviewed studies um, handled through universities that speak to the efficacy of long-term residential that for some families, for, for, for some children on the higher end of the acuity um, spectrum, this sometimes is the only thing that works and saves right. their lives. So I'd invite you to go to that website and kind of swim around in that research. It'll also link up to um, OBH, which is uh, Outdoor Behavioral Health. Uh, there's the actual wilderness programs and um, getting young people out away from the distractions of life and, and unplugged from you know their media and being able to have these um, healing experiences in nature. That is actually exceptionally well-researched. Yeah. And so you can link to that as well. Can, can I go back just to, I just had a thought, you know, when, when you talk about whether or not something works in many, in many instances, it is, um, has less to do with a provider or a service or an intervention and more to do with the diagnosis. Right. So, um, if, if you have, um, skin cancer, Right, and you might have a squamish cell versus something more serious, right? And you have statistical death rates based on the diagnosis, and and so sometimes it's really difficult when you look at national statistics versus very specific statistics on private, individually owned and operated residential treatment centers who have these criteria, which we're going to go to into differently, right? That's very different than, let's say, um, a community treatment uh, center locally funded by um, a government entity specifically with a certain social economic status or certain uh, drug addiction problems or certain, I mean, there are certain things that are very hard to treat and with very little uh, funding and with very sad and, and desperate situations. And so recidivism is very high. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look at what's happened with the depression and suicide correlation rates over the last 10 years, you know, going from maybe the third, not maybe the third most likely cause of death for young people to, to number one, right? And then you add COVID onto that and and so when you talk about success and, and does it work, and particularly with the research, the more specific the research and the more specific what um, that you dig into that, then the more confidence that you can have that it works. And so if, if you're looking at just national statistics, then you're taking into all the diagnoses and all the problems and all the all the different groups and all the different treatment facilities with all the different professional levels of care. And that becomes um, kind of dismal for families. And sometimes they get that research and they, or they hear those statistics and it scares them. Yeah. But you and I have specialized in this one area, right? We're very, very much um, connected to and work with the wilderness program. So we kind of know them. But really, we're long-term residential, right? We're teenager, young adult, long-term residential specialty. And that, um, that we know with strong confidence, with all sorts of um, you know, third-party uh, 
uh, intricate digging and, and decades, we know it works and we know it works well. Right. It's statistically strong. Right? Yeah. And that said, I believe that every, everybody out there working with youth, every mental health professional working with youth, outpatient, inpatient, short-term, long-term, everybody I think has an ethical obligation to participate in outcome research. Yeah. And I think that we are behind the medical field in terms of, um, I think that we have fewer studies. Um, we need more longitudinal studies with impeccable, you know, methodologies of the highest standard. Um, so I, I would say that if you're looking around at a treatment program, that is one of the top questions I would be asking them is, is what are your outcomes and how do you, and who does them, who, who does <laughs> them? How are they right? done? Yes. And, and what do they say? And, um, and, you know, drill down, learn about, um, treatment methodologies and, and learn about, um, research, research methods and learn the questions to ask to make sure it's a solid study. Mm-hmm. Moving on to, to safety. Um, this is a, this is a tough one because anytime you work with a human system, anytime you introduce human beings into anything, yeah. um, you're relying on the morals, ethics, and judgment of a human being. And we know that uh, there are people who are excellent at those three things. And then there's every shade of gray all the way down to people who have no morals and no ethics. And they're, they're actual just predators, right? Exactly. There's also, when you're dealing with mental health, you're dealing with individual instability sometimes, right? So mm-hmm. even if you have all the right caregivers... If I'm determined to commit suicide or if I'm or if I have some other biological problem, right, whether it's an anxiety based problem or uh, some other hardwiring, an autistic based problem or whatever it is. Right. Um, that diagnosis itself sometimes creates unsafety yeah. in and of itself. Right. Um, the 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 high levels of diabetic problems, the high levels of allergy problems that have um, really become onset in the last 10 to 15 years, right? Those statistical trends are, are going up. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when we talk about safety in a residential treatment center, you, you can talk about um, the bad actors every once in a while that get into these programs, but you can also talk about the fact that sometimes the child themselves, it it is, um, very difficult, right? To, to yeah. create a safe environment when you have so many variables that could go wrong. Right. Because it's not that it's just the, the paid staff members that impact clients, clients right. impact each other as well. Exactly. Don't they? Yeah. Well, what it really boils down to, um, I'm a believer in regulation. I'm a believer in having eyes on. And so the question is who is watching these treatment programs, um, is it, are they there to discipline and police themselves <laughs> or yeah. is there some kind of a neutral third party or parties that are able to, to watch and to hold them accountable? Right. And are there ways that, that are for, for some programs to get away mm-hmm. from that oversight? Yeah. Um, maybe because they think they don't need it or because they don't want to pay for it or because of whatever, but 
Yeah. So what are what are those things? Like the the obvious one and the one that hits the the media quite a bit is state, right? Right. The state, um, in our case, the state of Utah, but there are forty nine other states, right? And a state has an obligation. All fifty states have current obligations by their legislature to to regulate certain things. So some states regulate plumbers and some states don't, but most of them do, right? Mm -hmm. And some states regulate medical doctors, actually all of them do, right? Mm -hmm. And some states regulate long-term residential treatment and some of them don't, right? Right. And so, and each state uh, is is responsible to make the, the rules and here's what you can do and here's who can do it and here's where you can do it. And, and that um, lies first and foremost in the state. Yeah. So in, in the case of Utah, like Craig mentioned, um, we are regulated. And uh, I believe that we've been well-regulated for a while, but one of the fantastic things that Paris Hilton and her group were able to do was they were able to come in and propose some legislation specifically for Utah, which is House Bill 127. Mm-hmm. That passed and is now law. Um, and Craig and I have been working with um, with state legislators and with uh, the Office of Licensing and yep. the Department of Human Services to figure out how to take that law and turn it into rule right. and to actually apply it. And, and we're in the middle of that process now. But I can tell you by and large that change was good. Um, it provides more safety for more students. Um, and maybe on another podcast, we can go into the details yeah. of what was involved in House Bill 127. There but I, I think it's safe to say now that Utah is the the most uh, heavily regulated in the nation when it comes to yeah. long-term residential. In fact, they may have been before, but now for sure they are. Um, but you, you make a, a point, and I do think that we should do a completely different day on this. But um, I, I think the point that is important for me to say is that the providers themselves, right? You and I and our colleagues, uh, the colleagues that we like to hang out with at least, uh, we were all excited. We didn't fight this bill because what it does is it takes what we're already trying to do and, and it makes a, a, a fair, a level playing field for competitors who aren't doing that. Right. right? And like when bad things happen, it's a reflection of all of us. Right. And so the, uh, so many of the programs uh, were allowed to just do kind of what they wanted to do, and some of them were doing great and some of them not so great, but at least now there's a standard. Right. Um, and so we were excited about that. Right. So j- just to give you a little flavor of, of what regulation looks like from a state, um, here in Utah, we have frequent visits from our state licensors and investigators. Um, so they will show up announced and unannounced. And the unannounced is really important. They'll just show up, yeah. you know, out of the blue and they'll walk through and kind of turn over every stone and they'll interview students. And they'll interview staff and they'll look at your records and they'll look at your vehicles and they'll check, make sure you don't have bald tires. And yeah. like they go through everything, your employee charts, background checks, and everything has to be in order. Yeah. And, and again, they will come several times a year. It's actually quarterly and more often if needed, um, and that is announced and unannounced. Um, the other thing that programs are required to do 
is there are what's called critical incidents that were required by law to report. So that would be everything from if a student were to run away from the campus or if um, if a student were to be out skateboarding in the skate park and they and they twisted their wrist or if we had a medication error. There are tons of things that any time they happen, we have to report those to the state, state of Utah. Yeah. And the state looks at every single incident microscopically, and then they decide whether or not they want to send an investigator out to the program to dig deeper right. into that. And, uh, and so that is a really a fantastic way to, to make sure that things are safe, right? That we're yeah. thoroughly being looked at. So that's state licensing, and there's a lot more that goes into that. But additionally, um, there are some programs that volunteer to have additional regulation. Right. So this is not required by anybody. It's not required by the state. But this would be something like the Joint Commission mm -hmm. or CARF or COA. There are organizations out there. In fact, your local hospital most likely is accredited by the Joint Commission. They will come in and they'll make sure that the infection control policies are up to par with your hospital. And they'll make sure the doctors have the right certifications. And they go through their checklist of 500 different things and, and hospitals are certified. That same agency, there are programs that volunteer to have those agencies come in and accredit them, of okay. which Telos is one, right? The Joint Commission accredits us and has for the past 18 years. And that, those um, accreditations go over also physical plant safety things mm -hmm. um, like fire escapes and, and water pressure and you name it. There's just so many different things that that uh, Joint Commission um, accreditation uh, helps programs right. to be really good at and have certain standards. So, so if I were a parent, just make a, a note of this. If you're looking at programs... One thing that you may have not known to ask, but now should, is are you accredited by any national accrediting agency? Mm -hmm. um, again, that is a program raising their hand and stepping forward and paying money to voluntarily have a third party come in and give extra best practice regulation yeah. and to hold that program to industry standard nationwide. Um, additionally, I think good questions to ask are about staff training. Um, in most states that are regulated or all states that are regulated, staff have to pass a background check. Yep. So you don't have staff with uh, certain types of criminal, criminal records on campus with the students. Staff are trained in CPR and first aid. They're trained in de-escalation and safety techniques. So as you can imagine, you know, the, the young people that are here with us, in these programs, um, when they're having a bad day, sometimes they can escalate. And in that moment, you have to know what to do. If you have a strong-armed or a heavy-handed approach, you end up escalating them even further. But if you're in line with best practice and with the best training and the best certifications, you know how to de-escalate a young person who's upset um, to create stability and safety. Um, and in, again, there are national certifications that, that guide and oversee that process for programs. So having said, you know, I've just mentioned about seven or eight different 
um, safety measures. That said, I think there's no substitute for going to a program right. and walking the campus and meeting the people that are there on site and looking in their eyes and shaking their hands and, and being able to sit down with the students at that campus. Yep. Um, most programs will allow you to go and sit down with students um, privately. So you can, without, a, without an adult or a program person in the room, and you right. can ask them, is this place safe? Is there abuse that happens here? How are you treated? How, do you have a friend here? Do you feel cared about? You know, are you getting better? Right. Yeah. Um, very important thing to do. I think um, when you sit down with another human being, I think you have a, a, a sense, especially if you're a parent. Right. You you love your child, and you're you're going to get a sense, and you can't get that over the phone. You you can't get it off a website. You can't get it off of Google reviews, right? You you need to actually, um, if, if your child is in a serious enough situation where you're considering long-term residential, um, you need to invest the time and the money and the resources to actually go and meet the people who are going to be caring for your child. I, that's, I, I just can't say that enough. So, so this is the point where if you're taking notes, get out your pencil and paper and and get ready. Uh, I have some questions that I think if my child were in need of long-term residential or wilderness, um, I would be asking these six questions. Yeah. Um, well, first and foremost, go and tour the program. Yeah. Right. And while you're there, ask the questions. Number one, are you licensed? Meaning, are you licensed by the state? By the state. Right. Now, that might seem like a no-brainer because we just kind of said that all states have regulations, but there are all sorts of ways around this. Well, and there are states that when it comes to young adult treatment or when it comes to certain populations of youth treatment aren't regulated, are, they're don't not have licensure. Right. right? And, or for another example is maybe if you don't have a certain number of beds, right? So maybe you can do treatment for three kids without a license, but maybe six kids you have to have a license. Right. So, like I said, ask the question. Don't just assume. Right. Second question, are you nationally accredited? And the, the big accrediting bodies that you want to listen for is the Joint Commission, CARF, and COA. Yep. Third, um, are you a member of a professional association, a trade association, that is dedicated to quality assurance and quality improvement? Um, and there are many. There's ACRC, uh, NATSAP, YADA. There are several um, that uh, that programs can join as program members that help them rise in their in their ability to provide quality, safe, effective treatment. Yeah. Fourth, are you participating in third-party outcome research, and can you show it to me? Yep. Okay. Fifth, I would ask a program, do you have any current disciplinary action against you from your state licensors or from your accrediting body? Right. right? So if, if there's been an incident, if there's been some kind of an error, significant error, then that will be on record. Sometimes it'll even say it on the website, right? It'll say they're required to put on their website, hey, we're currently you know, uh, being looked at for this, that, or the other. 
But that's a great question to ask. And then finally, have you ever had an instance of a known instance of abuse at your program? Um, and if so, how did you respond? Um, I, I just like there's good schools where uh, there's been a bad teacher and just like there's good churches where there's been a bad ecclesiastical leader, um, there are good programs that have that have sometimes had uh, something happen in their program that was unfortunate. To me, I would want to know about that, and I would want to know how they responded um, and how they've improved their program to create more assurances that it's much less likely to happen in the future. Um, ultimately we, we have, um, we have jobs, right? We, we all have to make a living. Um, the fact that Tony, that you and I chose to do a profession that, that gives back so much emotionally where you feel like at the end of the day, um, and at the end of your career, right. That you're feel like that you've made a difference in the world. Um, the fact that we both have children and that, that we have children who have had, uh, mental health needs and mm -hmm. support, um, and the fact that we both have known and worked with and been therapists for, and, um, so many families over the decades, right? Like all those things combined together, um, to me. I want whoever's listening out here uh, to this podcast, I want you to, to, to sense the genuineness of that we want you to find the right care and to not be so afraid that you become immobilized. Because if your child needs the treatment and if, it, if the treatment exists and it works and it's safe, um, don't let your fear uh, immobilize you. Um, we, we see it in a very real way, in a very personal way in every aspect, aspect of our life. And we've dedicated our lives to this. And so, you know, the message is, um, it does work and it is safe. Um, but it's still really, really, really scary as a parent. Yeah, it is. Um, going back to, to Paris Hilton and, and the people who've had bad experiences in treatment, you know, I just respectfully, there, there's two types of survivors of abuse when it comes to this, um, this population. One would be people who have had bad experiences and they want treatment programs to get better and safer and more effective. Mm -hmm. And then there are some out there that, that say, we just want treatment programs to go away altogether. Doesn't matter if they're good, mediocre, or poor. We want them wiped from the face of the earth. And it's kind of like somebody having a bad experience with a dishonest auto mechanic then going on a campaign to make it so that the world no longer has auto mechanics, right? right. <laughs> Where would we be, right? Right. right? So clearly we need this care. Um, somebody has to treat these families. Somebody has to treat these kids. And, um, and like Craig said, we've devoted our lives to doing that. But what's so important to us is that we're doing it in a way that preserves dignity 
and life safety and is ultimately effective. Um, I'm a parent that not only have I worked in this profession my, li- my whole life, I'm a therapist, but I've actually sent a son to um, long-term treatment. Um, so, and it, you know, I was able to sit in the same seat that other parents uh, sit in, and I was able to go through that process as a parent and not as a program person. Um, and it was life-saving. Yeah. It was life-changing and life-saving. So that said, we just want to um, offer hope uh, to parents, to families. We want to encourage you to keep going, to keep the faith. Um, life is hard. Sometimes it feels like life is getting harder and harder, but, um, you know, calm seas don't make great captains. These difficulties that we go through, they're turning us into something great. They're making something beautiful out of us and out of our children. And with that said, we want to wish you a peaceful, yeah, peaceful new year. Happy new year. And please remember, mental health matters. Good night.